Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You're listening to SFP Hello and welcome to another exciting, pulse-pounding, infuriatingly good episode of SFP Now. Um, our special guest on t- today's show is um, Tim Jones, who's the composer of, you know, the composer behind uh, the music for Chuck. And he also did some of the music on, on Human Target, so we're going to be bringing you that interview a little bit later on. Um, but before we before we get to all that, um, you know, we we had some sad news, really, really sad news, a couple couple, couple of weeks ago, um, about the passing of uh, Christopher Lee, and we figured, you know, Raisa and I figured, who's on the line with me right now, we figured we'd sort of like, you know, spend a little bit of time discussing our favourite moments with uh, with Christopher Lee, and um, you know, because he's such a fine actor. Um, very, very underappreciated actor, certainly in his early career. Um, and, you know, he's kind of like become an iconic figure and he's basically one, he's, he was basically the last of the big three horror icons. You know, we had Vincent Price and, um, was it Benga Gagosi? And there was Christopher Lee. Mm, yeah, well, that's Hammer Horror, though, isn't it? And talking, yeah, you know, yeah, we're talking about true. people that have played. Play, play key roles um, like Dracula and stuff like that. Yeah, you know? he actually I rewatched them. He played, he is one of the few actors in the history of Hollywood to date who has the distinction of having played all of the big three actors, big three roles. He played Dracula, he played the Mummy, and he played Frankenstein's creature. Mm-hmm. In the course of, of of Hammer Horror, he did all three. And his portrayal of Frankenstein's monster, um, to this day, it's still one of my favourites. I mean, I've actually got the, uh, the the original Frankenstein movie he did um, on DVD. It was actually his first role with Hammer, I think. It was, and I, I rewatched it last night. It was beautifully done, beautifully yeah. done. You know, you know, and most of the acting because he, he didn't speak, he didn't speak a single line in that um, in that film. It was all like it was all physical. It was all sort of like mime and and stuff like that. But you know, the one thing I've learned about Christopher Lee, um, it was kind of common knowledge, but he was actually a special forces commando. Um, during the Second World War, mm, yes, you know, and and um, you know, it's something that um, never in came up that much during, during his career in, in interviews. But I, I do believe that I did. He did give one interview, and um, you know, he, he was asked about it, and um, he saw like rather quite, rather quite, quite cleverly sidestepped the question about the service mm. that, that that he did for, for for his country, sort of thing. So that sounds like a very commando thing to do. Mm-hmm. They don't talk about it. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, so like Frankenstein to me, you know, his his performance of Frankenstein is um, really really good. But I think it was, 
I think the one he was really, really, you know, ma- in, made for, and the one that pretty much everybody universally loves him for is Dracula. Yes, yes, and I had time to watch the original Dracula. Even if I had more time, I wasn't going to watch the sequels because they deteriorate. And um, but I watched the original one. Um, in which he had the most dialogue and the most nuance, and because uh, some of the later ones he refused to even do the dialogue because it was so cheesy by then that he just refused mm-hmm. to even deal with it. But the the original one he had uh, full on dialogue and the most nuanced performance um, material to work with, and it was it, it was it was really well done. Yeah, I remember Dracula nineteen seventy two A D, and I don't think he had a single line in that one. <laughs> No, no, there were there, there were a couple of them. He just refused to talk because mm. it, it was either either that or just to breach a contract and walk because the scripts were so bad. Apparently, he couldn't deal with it, and that's saying something because this was a man who made his career out of elevating subpar scripts. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, there's um, you know, he's he, he's done a whole ton of stuff, and uh, the the great thing about you know Frankenstein, and it becomes more apparent in the Dracula films where where he ha- actually has dialogue. Is the is the chemistry that he always had on screen with with um with the Nate Peter Cushing? They were they were best friends forever. They really really were, and they they were absolute mates from from Frankenstein on Curse of Frankenstein on, and, and were friends for years and years. Mm, well, it's interesting you say they were absolute mates. You you do know that uh, mates are actually a brand of condom, don't you? I did not. Know that. You did not know that. Uh, I, don't, I don't. I don't even think. I don't even think they're actually uh, sting around. Um, I think it was. Um, I think. I think it was Virgin that did them. <laughs> but but they were, they were. You know, sort of like um, it's one of those one of those words that you know. I, I tried to avoid using it too much now because of that connotation. <laughs> oh dear, I will avoid using it then. Mm. Yeah, but they they were BFFs. Yeah, and back. Back when that actually really meant something, and decades long friendship. And one of the one of the movies that I I watched that I hadn't seen because I made a point of watching some of the ones I hadn't seen. Um, and after this announcement was a film called House of Long Shadows. Ooh. And what it was was it was Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, and Vincent Price, all in the same space. Wow. Yeah. Oh, it was it was made in the seventies. It was um, toward the end of Price's career. Lee was actually the youngest of the three of them. It was kind of strange. He had dark jet black hair, um, and it was it was a, it was a marvelous character piece where it was basically a a, a send up of, of horror tropes, mm-hmm. and it, in the in the sort of chamber piece where they play. Um, members of the same family. Yeah, and, I, and you get- I'm looking up on IMDb now, but there's another film I remember him in, and he wasn't the star of this. He basically played the villain, and mm-hmm. it was a TV movie. They actually made two of them, but he was only in the first one. Um, I'm gonna see if I can find find out the name of it. You know, because he was he was in it with Pierce Brosnan and Alexandra Paul. Mm-hmm. And I'm gonna see if I can. I'm going to find it out through through Alexandra Paul's um, IMDb here because she's not done as much as Pierce Brosnan, so it might be easy to find <laughs> going right, through her. Right. But that that said, that that said, she's a TV actress, so. <laughs> 
Yeah. Um, so it's probably 1990. It's probably around about the same time that she was still doing Baywatch um, because it was sort of like it just preceded the um, it, it preceded the Bond films that Brosnan was in. Mm. Uh, where is it? It's not Baywatch Forbidden, Forbidden Paradise. I don't think it was that. No, I don't think he would have done that. <laughs> I don't think even he would have done that. Oh. oh man, was it not the shadows? Not that. Um, something to do with a train. God, it's not even listed. I'm just wondering if it might have had a different title in the States. Ah, mm-hmm. Sabrina Carver. Is this it? This looks like it could be it because Patrick Stewart was in it as well. Ah, okay. Um, what was it? They've actually, it's actually been, I think it was called Detonator. Um, and basically, it was sorry, it was called Detonator in the States, but it was called Something Train here in the UK. So it had a different, uh-huh. um, it had a different song like uh, feel to it. Anyway, basically, a German scientist added an ex-Soviet general in constructing a nuclear weapon, which is now in the possession of an American mercenary heading across Europe in a hijacked goods train. Malcolm Philpot, which is played by he's played by Patrick Stewart, of course, um, a member of U of the UNACO, uh, United Nations Anti-Crime Organization, must use a team of hand-picked agents from various parts of the globe to stop this death train at all costs. And basically, uh, Christopher Lee, he, he had a sort of like, um, he played General Constantine Benin. He was sort of like the main bad guy. He was one of the main bad guys, and he was sort of like, he was doing everything by the phone. He's, uh-huh. he's in and out of random phone boxes throughout the movie. <laughs> oh, okay. Sort of thing, but... It's, you know, it was made made back in 1993, so it was a couple of years before Brosnan did his first Bond film. Mm. And they did a sequel to it as well, but Lee wasn't in that one. But I remember I remember him doing that, and he, saw, like, he, he was basically given quite a subpar role, and he did quite a lot with it. Mm. You know, well, that's, his trademark is, again, elevating some part material, so... Mm. Well, that, that was called Detonator. It's called the original title. Yeah, I was right. It was called Death Train. The original title. They just renamed it for some strange uh-huh. reason. But yeah, there we go. He, he was in that, and um, he was very good in that. And he was also in the Star Wars movies. Remember, you know, he did the. Oh, Count Dooku. Who basically the, Dooku was the justification for the prequels, as far as I'm concerned. Absolutely, you know, he, he was, although, you know, we could have done with that awful first movie. Yeah, although that his 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 lightsaber duel with Yoda um, was superb, <laughs> even even if a lot of it was CGI. His lightsaber duel with Yoda was ridiculous. <laughs> it was... It, it was it was superb in that in that they just went they went for it mm-hmm. absolutely went for it and um, it it was one it was one of those things where you had to get an actor likely to bring in the gravitas to make it believable because these were both such ancient creatures mm-hmm. within this within this you know within this internal logic that. You know, you would need someone like Christopher Lee to play Yoda's Padawan. Yeah, and the the other thing as well, um, I'm just wondering how much of the um, of the duel Christopher Lee would have done himself at that point. I mean, the last few years he's been really, really frail and walking walking with a stick. Yeah, so I remember. He, although he was he was he was 80 when he, during Star Wars, so he was able, I think, to do a little bit of it mm. still by himself, but not a huge amount. You know, and it, it was kind of kind of shocking actually for me to see him like that. He was um, they they had the uh, the Baftas a few years back, 
and he turned up um, to receive a Lifetime Achievement Award or something. And he turned up, and he was walking on the stage with a stick, and he looked really, really frail, and I was quite shocked at how frail he looked, given that earlier on in that day, I'd just seen him sort of, like, knocking ten tons of shit out of Yoder in, 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 in the in the second Star Wars movie. Yeah, that's that's because it was ten years before that. Mm, well, I think it was... I think this was probably around about 2012. Uh, and if, yeah. you, if you remember, in 2013, he had that wonderful message, that wonderful New Year's message he recorded. Oh, yes. Yes, I loved that. He basically said, you know, don't worry, I'm, I don't uh, don't need to bother with the, um, the Wicker Man sequel. I'm not going to be in it. Not going to be playing any of his relatives or anything like that. Yeah, but what I, what I loved about it is there was, there was little there was, there was little uh, time in it, and he was talk he was plugging the uh, the the Lord of the Rings prequels, mm-hmm. and and he was saying by the time this goes to goes to where the uh, second um, Hobbit movie will be out in the cinemas, um, I truly hope that I'm around to see all three of them sort of thing. And, and he did, he made it. He made it. He made it. And you know, I thought that was quite cool that he made it. He managed to see all three of them because. Um, another thing um, which is only common knowledge amongst fans of his is the fact that he he he, he read the J.R.R. Tolkien Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit every year. It was kind of like an annual reading pilgrimage for him. Yes, and he was actually he actually knew Tolkien. He was like the only person on set who actually had known Tolkien. So it was it was very important to him. And I remember thinking I remember being kind of angry with Peter Jackson when when the announcement was made that he was expanding the two Hobbit prequel films to three. Because I'm like. You are you are aware that you're, you're making it that much harder for Christopher Lee. I'd like him to actually live to start to see all of these films, and you know you're you're pushing it. I was actually a bit upset about that, but he he made it. He made it. Yeah, I got a feeling that he filmed all his scenes when they were making the first movie. To be honest, because you know, uh, yeah, yeah, because um, the he, he was in it for quite 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 a bit in the last one, and he was in it for a little bit in the first one. So I got a feeling the probably would have filmed all of that back to back. Yeah, not just in terms of filming it back to back, but just be living long enough to actually see them in the theaters like he wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, I was I was afraid that if he expanded from two to three, that he wouldn't make it to the third one. So I was I was a bit, bit miffed with with Jackson initially for that, but fortunately uh, Lee made it. So. Don't blame Jackson; it was MGM's fault. Just remember, <laughs> MGM ran into trouble a few years back, and you know they they had all that, and MGM was. You know, was doing not uh, you know the Hobbit movies, but they you know because they had financial difficulties, they delayed it all, and they even cancelled Stargate Universe. Oh, <laughs> that's of right. That. That's right. And and all that yeah, stuff. It's their fault. Mm, so it's it's their fault, and um, also it's um you know you can put some blame on Del Toro as well for walking out on the film. <laughs> oh, that's true. Because that that whole that that whole she- shebang, whatever that was, delayed the process too. Mm-hmm. So you know, you, you know, can't, you can't blame Peter Jackson for that. <laughs> Although I'm, you know, I I've sort of seen all Hobbit, all, all three of the Hobbit films now, and um, they're I, not I just, as good. The, then the first one and the last one's good, but the, the middle one, you know, um, you did you just you didn't need all that stuff with Stephen Fry. That was all written into it to sort of like pad things out. Yeah. Yeah. And I've also noticed the running times on the films as well. They're, they're both shorter 
you know, they're all shorter than the uh, than the Lord of the Rings films. That's because they were trying to they turned they were trying to turn one book into three movies, and to miracle they did as well as they did. Mm. But what what all I'm saying is they could have done they could have done the book in two movies. They could have, and they yeah. should have. And um, and took that ridic- you know that ridiculous thing with Stephen Fry out. <laughs> not not that I have a problem with Stephen Fry because I don't think he's I think he's great in a lot of things, but I just felt that you know having having that and it just sort of like dragged. I, I didn't really find any of it humorous at all. No, it just sort of like dragged the film out. Yeah. And you know and delayed the inevitable. Uh, I would have you know if they, if they were going to expand anything. I think they should have expanded the dialogue between Bilbo and Smaug. Yes, because that was wonderful stuff. That was great stuff, and and you could tell, and you could tell that uh, Cumberbatch and Freeman were really playing it for all it was worth mm-hmm. and having a blast. Yeah. Well, um, back back on to Christopher Lee, um, you know, sort of like um, another film. And this is a film that he's most proud of is the original Wicker Man. And it's a beautiful film. It is. Um, unlike the uh, terrible uh, Nicolas Cage film. Didn't even bother with that. I, I didn't even bother with it. I just saw that. I seen the trailer. That was enough. <laughs> you know, sort of like, um, you know, because Nicolas Cage, he makes either really bad films or really good films. And, you know, you kind of have to pick and choose with him. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I didn't even bother with the the, this, the reimagining sequels to Ending the Wicker Tree, whatever that was. The, the one he said specifically he wasn't going to be in in the New Year's message, whatever that one was. I think that was probably the Wicker Man, the, uh, the Nick, Nick Cage one. No, there was a there was a there was a second one. that was the Wicker Tree that was a, by the same director of the original film. That was a sort of reimagining of some of the material, and he had um, Christopher Lee do a voiceover for it. But the actual character of Lord Summerisle was not appearing in it, and he specifically mentioned that he was not appearing as Lord Summerisle or anyone related to him. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm like I can I can skip that. <laughs> yeah, the the original Wicker. In the original Wicked Wicker Man, um, it was um, there's another great actor in that as well, in in Edward Woodward. Yes, yes. You know, who who we also lost a few years ago. Yes, and I was actually rather unhappy when when we lost Edward Woodward, and they did the, the, the retrospective. They honored him for the TV work, but they didn't mention um, the Wicker Man. And I, I think that's because they they have a bias against um, against a lot of a lot of genre stuff, and they um, were just going to focus on some of the other things that he had done. So they didn't they didn't really acknowledge the Wicker Man very much in a lot of the obits and and uh, memoriams that I read after Woodward died. Sad, really. It is because you know he, he, you know Woodward, though he wasn't really renowned for his film roles, uh, the ones he did do were really good films. Yes, very you know? good films. Just not really commercially successful films, perhaps, but you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but you know, The Wicker Man's probably is is uh, is is you know Christopher Lee's favorite out of all the films he's done. You know, it's one one that he that he always you know talks about and look back on fondly. But there was also, there's another couple of films he was in that I remember, I grew up watching as a kid, and that was the original Escape to Witch Mountain. Oh, that's right, he was in yeah. that. Yeah, he was in, yes. he was in the original one, before, before The Rock learned how to drive a taxi. Oh, yes, yes, 
Yeah, I had, I, I had, it's been years since I watched any of the Escape from Witch Mountain movies, so yeah. I, I had completely blanked that out, but he was in that one. Yeah, I think he was in both of them. Yeah. You know, sort of like, uh, it was, it, there was him and I think, he, I think there was a, a woman actress that was working with him quite a bit, and they, they were sort of like the main, main villains of that film. Bette Davis, Betty Davis. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. It was him and Bette Davis. And yeah, I was, remembered Betty Davis, but I, I blanked that he was in yeah, Witch Mountain. They, they both chewed up the scenery. They did. I also liked when I, I rewatched the Gremlins movies recently, a bit a bit before he died, uh, and I had I because I had forgotten he was in the Gremlins movies, but he was in the Gremlins movies as well. Yeah, was he in the second Gremlins one? Or was I he think he was just in the original. Yeah, I'm trying to remember what part he played because I've not seen those in a while. He, he was he was playing um, one of the other shop, one of the other um, office tenants. I think it was. Oh no 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 no. He was. He played the the original mad scientist, the one that the um, evil corporate guy. Uh, oh yeah, he was in Gremlins two. Yeah, that was Gremlins two. Yeah, because he had the guy. He had the other guy as well. Well, in there from the monsters, from the monsters doing the uh, do, do, doing the newsbeat updates. Oh, that's right. I'm not that's sure right. if that was Fred Gwynn. But it was somebody that looked um, tremendously like him. I think it might have been Fred Gwynn. Yeah. Mm. You know, that's um, I, I love Gremlins too. I think I, I think in a lot of ways I like Gremlins too over the first Gremlins because the uh, oh, yeah. the evil Gremlin could talk and <laughs> <laughs> it was rather wonderful. It was rather wonderful. Mm. I remember rewatching it and thinking, oh, that's interesting. Lee's in this one. Cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, was, yeah. it was sort of a send up of the mad scientist role, and he, he was perfect for it. He just played it tongue in cheek. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually went to see that one at the cinema, the second Gremlins film, and I remember it, see, you know, remember it well because it's sort of like a, um, basically I was with a friend and we we sort of like taken take you know we sort of like taken off and I was staying over at his place, um, mm. and we kind of went to see it in Liverpool on the way back to his place, sort of thing, and we we even popped into Chester Zoo. Sort of thing. Oh. So we we made quite a day of it because we'd basically just broken up for the college holiday. So we thought, oh, we will make the most of it then, you know. Mm-hmm. We'll just get the train to Chester Zoo. It's only like forty minutes, and then from Chester Zoo, after spend an hour there, we'll go go into Liverpool and watch watch a movie. <laughs> sort of thing. So, um, but I, I remember seeing it, and uh, I just uh, I I just loved that film. I loved the I loved the uh, the whole. Part that Robert Picardo played. He was wearing a he was wearing a wig, obviously, but you know. Yeah, yeah. And it just had so much going on, and so many, so many guest actors. It even had a guest guest spot from Hulk Hogan. <laughs> yes, yeah. It was, it was just one of those movies where everything got thrown in the kitchen sink, mm-hmm. and it, and it worked precisely for that. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just a shame that um, Joe Dante isn't involved in the uh, reimagining. That I don't doing. think that reimagining is even going forward. I keep hearing that it's off, that it's on, that it's off, that it's on. I think the last I heard is off again. Yeah, I've not reported on it in a while because you know it's been off and on so many times since I since I broke the original story that I just can't be bothered. <laughs> no, no, you know when when they start filming, you know we'll talk about it again. But mm-hmm. I'm, I'm I'm not really psyched for it. I'm on on these all of these remakes. I don't really care. I, I plan I I plan on renting Jurassic World when it comes out just to see it. I'm skipping the Terminator film altogether. A lot of these remakes and things, I just don't care anymore. Well, the Terminator film, I'm probably going to go see. I think mm-hmm. because it's so like, uh, 
and and because I I think the um, I think the actress that I got playing Sarah Connor, she's really really good. I mean, she's in Game of Thrones and she plays one of the most yeah. interesting yeah. characters in that. So it's worth going to see see it see what she does with the role of Sarah Connor and how different her portrayal is to yeah. to 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 the original. And I, I'm just burned out. I just I, I I haven't seen any of the Terminator films since the third one. I'm just burned out mm. on that whole universe. Well, you've only missed one film, so, you know, mm. it not really matter. Mm. And Salvation, I don't think, you know, S- Salvation was weird, you know, so you know, I think you could probably easily just sort of like uh, Gen- make Genesis a sequel to the second Terminator film, mm. you know. Um, maybe I'll what, run off the scene. I think that's what they're trying to do. And with Jurassic Park, that's a sequel, it's not a re- Jurassic World is a sequel, it's not a reimagination. Right. I knew that, but I mean, it's, it's, I'm going to rent it. I'm not actually going to go to the theater for it. Um, the only the only reimagining I really care about is the, the Fantastic Four one that's coming up in August. No, I don't really give a shit about that one because the first ones are terrible. Mm. <laughs> so I'm not going to bother with that. Um, mm. You know, I'm, I'm kind of getting burned out on the Spider-Man reimaginings. I'm sick of them. Mm. Sort of thing. Um... But, you know, I've got to wonder, um, that, that's that's a fun question. A fun question for us to ponder. If Christopher Lee was to play a Spider-Man villain, what, what villain do you reckon he'd play? Uh, if he'd been younger, well, it, it depends. If, he, if we're talking about older Christopher Lee, he could play the Vulture. Mm-hmm. Um, if we're talking about middle-aged or relatively younger Christopher Lee, he would have made a kick-ass Dr. Octopus. Mm, I was thinking younger Christopher Lee, maybe a kick-ass, you know... What's the name? Is it the, the was it Chuck Connors who you know turned himself oh, the into lizard, the, lizard. the lizard? Yeah, yes. I think I think he would have made a better lizard than than Doc Ock mm. in in yeah. terms of you know the lizard you know for me requires slightly more nuanced performance. Mm. So yeah. I think. I mean Christopher Christopher Lee is the sort of guy who if he'd done television in his in his um, in his younger years he's the sort of guy who would have played Reverse Flash. On a show like this, the current iteration of Flash, mm-hmm. he would have he would have done the whole um, nuanced anti-hero villain thing very well. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought he was really good in Man with a Golden Gun. Mm, yeah, he was. He was yeah. extremely good. You know, really, if you watch that film, it makes you aware of just how bad of an actor Roger Moore is. <laughs> mm. You know, when when you have Christopher Lee on the screen, and, and it's also, uh, you know, it's also sheer presence. You know. Christopher Lee's physical presence on the screen, you sort of like, you know, yeah. completely yeah. command, completely in command, you know, and Roger Moore kind of non-committal. <laughs> yeah, that's, it's especially true when, when you see him relative to the other horror icons in, in, in films like the one I mentioned, The House of Long Shadows, when you have him in the same space, literally, as Peter Cushing and, and Vincent Price at the same time. Mm-hmm. And keep in mind, he is, he is the youngest of the three at that point. Um, he belongs there, and it's, it's absolutely commanding when you when you watch the, the three of them riff off each other and play off each other. Mm. Yeah, it's it's yeah. amazing. I, I, I kind of want to look at that House of Long Shadow. Is it on Amazon? It's on Amazon. It's called The House of Long Shadows. Um, it's got some horror elements in it, but the twist at the end kind of... Well, it, it, it's it's obvious, but it's it's basically a it's basically an excuse, a narrative excuse to have the three of them in in one space, and it's it's awesome on that level. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, I've got, I've got to admit, you know, we're talking about the Star Wars films here, yeah? I, I, yeah. I personally think Christopher Lee got screwed over with the Star Wars deal he had. I think I think um, out out of him and Cushing, Cushing got the better deal. He did. Cushing got the better character overall. Mm. And um, Cushing actually had more to work with. Yeah. Um, but it, but again, that that speaks to Christopher Lee because whether it's karma or whatever, he basically made his career elevating some part circumstances, some part dialogue, some part whatever. He managed to yank it out of the fire and make it something memorable. And he, and he basically spent decades doing that. Mm. And um, it's 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 almost to where it's, it's was part of his skill set almost. Yeah, and, and it's it's all it's really really funny in a way because his career was really big in the fifties, sixties, and and perhaps early seventies. Mm-hmm. But so like uh, mid seventies onwards, right through to the. Uh, you know, to 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 so like uh, two thousand. You know, when mm-hmm. when he, when he got his first you know appearance in Star Wars. His career kind of, you know, plateaued out where he just did a, he ended up doing a lot of character work on TV and in miniseries and stuff like that. So yeah, I think part of that was um, he he knew he was in his health was probably deteriorating and he specifically chose limited projects where if things went bad he wouldn't be inconveniencing the producers very much if they had to edit it out suddenly if he was sick or died or something like that. And he just didn't. He he was, you know. I think he was just trying to be gentlemanly and and efficient about, you know, his his energy levels and what he could actually pull off at that point. Maybe, maybe. I mean, you know, because he just seemed to when he when he came back in. Um... In the Star Wars movie, he seemed to come back with a vengeance, and he was getting parts in all sorts of things. Um, you know, it kind of lifted his profile. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think it might have, it might have been a combination. Quite a bit. What, what, I, what I found interesting, I mean, about his later career is that he he um, he went into heavy metal rock and roll. <laughs> yeah, I've actually heard some of the stuff he was doing, and so I could. And it Concept works. Yeah. It yeah. works. Yeah. You know, he's it's, sort of like, it's he's, good stuff. He's it's got, good stuff. He's got a proper bass voice, so it works, you know. Yes. But between that and the and the Doom Rock Christmas carols he was putting out at the end. <laughs> mm, yeah, he he was he was having a laugh. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. Um but you know, and it's it's kind of funny because you you wouldn't expect him. You know, if you look at him and you see him in Dracula and then you see him do you know doing that, you wouldn't expect him to have that sort of sense of humour. No, no. Yeah, so it was kind of a little bit out of left field. That I did want to bring up one of the movies that I had never seen, but I I was tooling around on Amazon looking for titles and. Um, one of the movies I watched was The Face of Fu Manchu because he apparently played Fu Manchu, the classic character, in a series of films. I didn't have the energy for all of the films, but, he, but I watched the first one. And I'm glad I did because it's, it's very important for DC fans, comics fans and Arrow fans, uh, because Fu Manchu is where we get Rachel Gould from. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rachel Gould was based largely on Fu Manchu. And if you watch Christopher Lee as Fu Manchu, it's... Um, it's it's very instructive because there are bits and pieces of Rachel Gould and Fu Manchu. There he has a he has the beautiful daughter who um, acts as his his gal Friday. He has the you know that uh, Rachel Gould had the sort of thimble of doom on his finger, the gold thimble of doom that he was going to pass on to to Ollie. 
Uh, Fu Manchu had that, and he would point it men menacingly because it was in the shape of a talon, and point it menacingly uh, whenever he was hypnotizing people because Fu Manchu could hypnotize people. Mm -hmm. It was it was um, rather marvelous to watch and to and to and to see that. Um, that cultural heritage, you know, kind of got passed on. So yeah. I don't think people think about that. Yeah, and, you know, especially DC Comics fans, not all DC Comics fans will think to look at Fu Manchu and make that connection. Yeah, yeah. Um, but another film I, I remember him in, he did a he, he did a he did a version of Rasputin, the Mad Monk. Yes, I, I didn't watch it, but I'd seen pieces of it. Um, mm. It was really quite wonderful. I also know that he did a version of The Musketeers, which I didn't have time for at the time, but I'm definitely going to try and, and, and check it out because I think he I think he plays um he plays uh, oh Lord I'm. Cardinal Richelieu. He plays Richelieu, yes. And, um, um, no, I'm actually, check that out. actually, you're wrong. Um, he plays the uh, part that, uh, that that Mark Warren played. Oh, he plays Rochefort. He played Rochefort. You're talking about the, the the Musketeers movies he did with the ones with Michael York. He did the sec the first and second ones of those. He played okay. Rochefort. I'll have to I'll have to check them out because I don't I don't think I saw I don't think I don't think I've seen the Michael York versions. Have you not? Or at least if I or if I have, it's been a lot of years because mm. I I don't remember them very well. Yeah, they, up until a few years ago, they were repeated um, on TV here in the UK pretty much every year. So that's okay. probably how, how I made that connection. When you when you bought Musketeers, and I thought, yeah, um, yeah, he played Rochefort. Okay, in, I'll in, check that out. He played. He was I... in. He was in the Three Musketeers, and I think the second one they did was the Four Musketeers. Mm, okay. And um, and I think it was uh, Chowton Heston that played uh, Cardinal Richelieu in those. Oh God! Okay, I'll brace myself for that. <laughs> so, <laughs> what? You you not not a fan of Chowton Heston? No, no, not really. Um. <laughs> No, so he was quite good as Rochor, I think. He was he wasn't too bad, you know. Um but you know, Christopher Lee definitely stole 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 the you know, stole the screen from from him in the first two in the first two movies and chewed up all the scenery. Mm. You know, and Rackle Welsh was always also, also in them as well. Oh wow. Um Okay. So, you know, they they had a quite an all-star cast. You had Frank Fingy in there. Oliver Reed was in it. I think Oliver Reed oh, played Aramis. Oh, dear God. Everybody was in it. Um, and uh, Frank Fingy was in it. Uh, Richard Chamberlain was in it. Oh, my Lord. Yeah, Richard Chamberlain played... Um, which one of the Musketeers is it that, 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 that was training to be a priest? Was that Aramis or Portos? That, that was Aramis. Aramis. And Porto, Portos is... Is Portos a drunk? Yes, Portos is the drunk. That that was with Milady. Um Yeah, Oliver Reed plays Portos, and um, you know, obviously uh, Michael York was D'Artagnan, and mm. Frank Thingy. Fra Frank Thingy was the other one. Ah, <laughs> uh, uh, um, Athos. Athos. Yeah, but I had you know, you're right. They they did have an all star cast. Though, those those two movies. Um, you know, they did three of them. The last one was um, was in the. Um, was made in the mid eighties, um, and Roy Roy Kinnear was also in them. Roy Kinnear played uh, D'Artagnan's manservant. Oh wow! Okay, this must have been when he was very much younger. Okay, but you know, like, I think Roy Kinnear is playing Frankenstein's creature in um, in Penny Dreadful now. No, 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 not Rory Kinnear. Roy Kinnear. Roy. Okay. Roy Roy, Roy Kinnear. He's he's a he's an English actor. Okay. He's, I mean, he's known known for, mainly for comedy comedy roles. I'd say. Um, okay. Okay. He, he was also he was also in the in the uh, Gene Wilder Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Oh, okay. He okay. Made one of dads. Okay. Um, but 
Yeah, every, everyone was in those, those films. <laughs> you know, they're, 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 they're good films. Um, you know, for me, they've not made Musketeer films since I've been able to match those. Mm. I mean, the the one that they did in, in the 90s in comparison to those films was, um, despite the great actors that they had in the roles, was so yeah. par in comparison to those those, those, three, those three Musketeer films that are made in the 70s and early 80s. Yeah, um, yeah. It's, it's, probably, it's probably a generational thing. They, they watered them down for the new generation. Yeah, but, you know, you, you know, I think when you see them, if you get a chance to see them, you'll probably agree with me because the, the, the casting in them is superb. You know, pretty much mm-hmm. everyone's in them, you know, from Christopher Lee to Chuck Heston to, you know. Yeah. But yeah, I'm so like it was. Uh, they were good. I'm surprised you've not seen those because uh, you know they uh, they are. I might have, I might have seen one of them, but it might have been years and years ago, probably before the Musketeers meant anything to me. So. Mm, more than likely, but they they the kind of like uh, the kind of like action comedies. Mm. You know, so they they you know the kind of played for laughs a little bit, but you know, but you know, then again, so was the '90s version, but the, these ones for me were funnier. They were, they were better. You know, okay. because the, 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 the actors, you know, had a, you had, you had, you had a better kind of a rat playing the, playing the thing. I mean, you know, for me, uh, Tim Curry as Cardinal mm-hmm. Rishmu, that just didn't work. No, it didn't. It didn't. You know? um, so, but yeah, he, 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 you know, he even did, he even did the sword fighting in those as well, Christopher Lee. Oh, wow. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so, you know, and, and he's wearing an eye patch. Um, although we don't find out how he how he lost his eye like he did in the uh, in the recent Musketeer series. Mm. So, um, but yeah, so like um, all star cast, they're, they're brilliant films. And I think I think we're just about Christopher Lee ourselves out. Yes. Uh, so I'd say now it's time for uh, the interview with uh, Tim Jones, um, well known composer in TV and film. Um, and, you know, genre fans will probably know him best for the music that he did for Chuck the, uh, at the NBC series, which, is, which, which was cancelled a few years ago after, four se- after five seasons. Um, but, you know, the, the, the thing that I love from Chuck in, in the music, and they actually mentioned it in, in the interview, is that he's, sort of like he's drawing from so many different, different styles uh, of music. Um, for for that series, and um, you know, and you know, in in the interview, as you'll hear, he, he talks about working with Jeffster, which is sort of like the uh, the band made up of two characters, mm-hmm. and uh, this band Jeffster, it's sort of like they're, they're singing eighties classic, you know, classic eighties torch songs, but they're singing them really, really, really badly, <laughs> so, and. You know, the, the, I can tell you as a musician, you know, when, once you learn how to play an instrument and stuff like that, it's very, very hard to play it badly, intentionally, <laughs> when you've been learning to play it really well. And it's the same that goes for singing. So, you know, now, now it's time for the uh, interview with uh, with Tim Jones. And, uh, you know, so hope you guys enjoy it.
Hang on, I'd like to welcome uh, Tim Jones to the show. Uh, Tim Jones is a, a pretty well-known composer in TV and movie circles, and um, perhaps the thing he's most well-known for um, to, to sci-fi and fantasy fans is the work that he did on Chuck. Hey, Tim, how you doing? I'm doing very well, Ian. How are you? I'm good. Um, I, I guess the first question I, I'd like to ask you, uh, it's probably the one you hear all the time right away, is uh, how did you actually get into music and how did it lead to you composing for film and television? You know, I started fairly young. Um, I started playing the clarinet when I was a kid and um, that kind of transitioned into spending my summer earnings on synthesizers. And, uh, you know, spent a lot of time in my room just making music. And, um, you know, I thought maybe I was going to be a, a member of Depeche Mode or something, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, eventually I, I grew up and went to uh, college and discovered that I could kind of combine two things that I really loved, which were movies and music, and uh, transferred to Boston, uh, the Berkeley College of Music. And they have a really great film scoring program there. So I was able to learn kind of the craft of putting music to film. Cool. Um, who do you say um, are, are, are your musical influences, you know, the, the people that are probably most informed your work? You know, it's pretty varied. Um, <clears throat> I heard a lot of Mozart early on. There was a lot of uh, classical music in my house, but there was an equal amount of Beatles and mm-hmm. uh, Led Zeppelin. You know, I, I remember pulling a record out of my dad's collection and, and this guy with a bunch of sticks on his back. I was like, what the heck is this? You know, and you throw it on the record player and then Black Dog, you know, <laughs> it just blew my mind. Um, so, you know, my, my influences are um, on the film side. Obviously, you know, I, I love John Williams work. Um, that was one of the first things I noticed as a kid. Uh, his work in Star Wars and then Raiders and, you know, the list goes on. But um, I also really enjoyed some of the, the guys on the synth side, um, like Jan Hammer, his work on mm-hmm. uh, Miami Vice, um, really, really interested me because I was a big synthesizer, you know, geek. And uh, there, were, there were a lot of synths I couldn't afford that I really wanted that some of these guys were using, you know, the Fairlight and the Sinclavier. And <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, you know. But uh, I love Vangelis. I thought his. I still think his score to Blade Runner is is one of the great, um, you know, uh, marriages of, of image and music. Um, I just I just saw it again the other night, and it's it's, it's brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, remember that it's, in the same <laughs> exactly. it's, it's going through my head but it's not coming out right um right, right, right. you had that song like little song like riff you know that, that thing going on exactly yeah it's like the end, the end titles thing that they tacked mm-hmm. on yeah. Um, yeah but you know i also like a lot of classical uh posers um sibelius is a big influence um I think John Adams is amazing. Some of the work that he's done, I love his more contemporary sound. Um, Jerry Goldsmith's probably one of my favorite film composers. It just um, what the things that he did really speak to me. Mm-hmm. He had a real kind of could have a very raw sound at times, which I thought was was great. I love this Planet so, of the Apes theme. Oh yeah, I mean it's yeah. it's fantastic. He was very experimental, and that's that's what I really liked about him. And he could just, he could write an amazing melody. I mean, his score for Rudy is in my top ten, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so pretty 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 varied interests i think mm-hmm. um a lot of people are gonna know you best for the fantastic work you did on chuck uh what was your brief when you was approached to score that show uh because 
you know, there's there's a lot of there's a massive variation in musical styles that that that, that are actually used in the show, and it's all like um, it see always seemed to me when I was watching it there was something pretty much for every every, every everyone's taste. Yeah, that's interesting that you say that, and, and thank you for for the kind words. Um, I uh, loved that show, continue to love that show. Um, it was a, I, I'm sure that people have heard me say before that it was just such a great opportunity because of the variety of music. Um, I think that the the thing that kind of was the cohesion for that score was that it was always about the characters. I always tried to have the emotion of what these people were feeling, you know, um, weaving its way through, whether it's, you know, um, Volkov's theme, you know, the very sort of Russian choir and, and synthesizers and things. And then, you know, the other side being Chuck and Sarah's theme, where it's just a simple piano. Um, you know, I, I always tried to, and I know, you know, Obviously, most composers will do this. They try to find the right emotion. But but I think that Chuck, at its core, had that kind of emotional through line. We, we, we cared about these characters. Mm-hmm. And so the, the music kind of branched off from that. It, it went to all the different places that, that the characters went. You know, I mean, the show itself had such a wide variety of, of locations and, and types of uh, scenarios. And it really was a hybrid. You know, it was like a comedy, action, romantic uh, sci-fi uh, thriller, you know, <laughs> it kind of it had a lot of names, you know. Mm. Um, so mm. I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, it, it kind of does in a lot of way. I mean, I, I, um, I, I was actually a little bit disappointed that you, you guys were not allowed to include the uh, short skirt, long jacket um, theme from Cake that was used in the intro. Yeah, you know, I, I know the record company uh, approached them, and, and for whatever reason, uh, Cake uh, wasn't interested in doing that. So um, it's too bad. It is, you know, it's sort of the bookend mm-hmm. <laughs> for, for every episode, you know, uh, Cake up front and my Chuck theme and the end titles. So yeah. uh, I, I'm, I'm with you there. It would have been nice to have it on there. I mean, you know, if, if there's one good thing that's actually come out of it is um, it's kind of like... Um... Because I like that record, because I like that theme tune so much, I'd never actually heard the song before. So I actually went out and bought, you know, um, an album of Cake's work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's so, great, isn't it? I mean, they're very, they're very quirky and original. I, I love their stuff. They're good. Yeah, I, I just love some of their riffs and, and, and some of the things that are going on and, you know. Um, yeah, it's well done. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the elements, um, you know, to, to Chuck, uh, was, was many, many things that Jeff and Nesta did in their, their, their sort of parody band, Jeffster. Uh, how much did you, how, how much input did you have in, in, in doing those arrange, arrangements, for, you know, for, because they, they sang some pretty I, I, iconic songs or, or, or sang them, uh, badly, which is really hard to do. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, well, the arrangements are all me, um, with the exception of, you know, I had a, a good friend of mine, Eugene Edwards, who played guitar on quite a few of them, and a few other people who, who uh, handled some of the guitar. But as far as the arrangement, that, that kind of fell in my uh, my lap to do those, and it was great fun. I mean, to take these, you know, great songs, you know, from Queen to AHA to CCR to John Denver, you know, <laughs> All these other, I, I had a blast doing those. And, um, you know, Vic Sahai, um, they, when they started Jeffster, I really don't think they expected him to be able to pull it off the way that he did. Mm-hmm. And they, they kind of wanted him to be beautifully awful, you know? 
and and I think he sort of he sort of took that and ran with it. I mean, the guy became just you know I was really really impressed with what he was able to do from if you if you look at the arc from you know I think um, I think Africa may have been our first one. I think it was yeah, yeah yeah, and then to end up with Take on Me, you know, um, just look at the arc of what Vic was able to accomplish. I mean, he wasn't a professional vocalist, you know, he, he'd never done it before, and. That's just amazing to me that he was able to pull that off. Yeah, I was watching the, uh, I was watching the, I think it was a final episode of uh, season three where they're in the shop and uh, Chuck's taking on um, t- taking on Shaw, and in the background is Jester, and they're doing uh, they're doing a version of Bon Jovi's Dead or Alive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that video was hysterical. I mean, that's the other thing is, you know, both both Vic and Scott, um, I, I, I don't give Scott Krinsky enough credit because he he was the other half of that duo on screen. I mean, um, while Scott didn't participate in the, in the music portion of it, um, he brought that character to life on screen. So I need to make sure I give him a, a shout out for, for the great job he did there. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it surprises me still that Vic, Vic Zahe did the vocals for that. I mean, because, you know, the, the one thing as musicians, it's so like it's um, it's hard enough to actually play something well, but it's actually twice as hard to deliberately play something badly. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think I always tried to keep a level of, um, uh, I didn't want it too polished, you know. Um, We certainly could have gone all Toto on it. You know, those guys were all amazing studio musicians, and there's not a note out of place, you know, but... But Jeff, you know, the musical savant of the two, in, in my head, wasn't that, you know. I mean, he sort of did the best he could, and it, and it all kind of had an 80s synth underpinning, you know. <laughs> so we, we was always cognizant of, don't make this too good, you know. Yeah, I think those two should go on America's Got Talent, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very much so. I'd love to see that. You know, just, do, just, just go on for a bit of a joke. and. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, well, that's the thing is they really own it. You know, when they got on stage, I mean, when I don't know if you saw the footage of them at Comic-Con. Um, those two guys just brought the room down. It was it was awesome. You mm-hmm. know, came out and just owned that song. Yeah, I remember. The, the Queen, yeah. I, I remember when, when, when they first started doing it, I thought, I so want to interview those guys. And unfortunately, it's never happened. But <laughs> I, I still hold out hope. <laughs> think it's uh i don't think that is an impossible thing i i you know i think you should uh keep keep trying after because you know they're both uh really wonderful guys just mm-hmm. really really down to earth really nice human beings so um yeah just just keep after i, I don't think that's uh, an impossible uh, plan mm-hmm. you also did a you did the sound you know some of the soundtrack for human target was it was it you that did the second season of human target or, or were you involved in both seasons no, that's correct. It was just the second season, and um, another uh, really talented composer, a guy named Bear McCreary, yeah. in the first season. Um, they kind of made a change in the tone of the show uh, going into season two, and um, so, you know, I was brought on, and uh, I think they were, you know, the, the kind of marching orders were sort of a, a breezy, kind of uh, almost... 
you know, approaching it more like Ocean's Eleven, you know, with some mm -hmm. of the humor and um, just just making it cool in a sense, you know, um, were, were some of the main instructions I was given. Yeah, did you, uh, did, you know, it must have been a, an easy job because Bear did such a fantastic job with the first season and a lot of people... You know, really fell in love with that with that main title track that the bear did, and and when it changed, it it's sort of like a, I don't know. Was you aware of the uproar? I was aware of the uproar, and um, you know, I felt bad. Um, uh, you know, Bear is actually a, a good friend of mine and, and a lovely human being. Um, and you know, I, we sort of get our, our orders. You know, uh, those decisions are made way above my pay grade, and and I could certainly understand how the fans felt. And you know, uh, in my own defense, um, I just did the best I could with with what they asked me to do, which was to make it a little more contemporary. Um, you know, the other one uh, is it's a great theme. It really is. And, um, you know, they act, I don't know if you noticed, but they there actually are some similarities in the two. So it ended up being um, I was credited as is arranging uh, Bears theme. I think they're a bit different, but they were close enough that that was kind of the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, I, I understand why people are upset and, and I certainly wouldn't um, disparage anyone who, who preferred the first one. Uh, it's it's great, and but hopefully, you know, uh, there's some people who liked what I did as well, and you know, uh, it was kind of a different approach, I guess, mm -hmm. is, is the way I would put it. Well, moving on to something a little bit different, um, you've done done the music for a show called Cult, and uh, we've not actually had that here in the UK. Uh, oh, what, okay. what can you tell us about about, about it, and uh, what what's what's the musical approach you've taken with that? Well, that one was a lot of fun, and um, so the show is is uh, a little bit meta in that it's a show about a show on television, and the, the show that they're making on the show starts to sort of seep into into their real reality, like things that happen on the show they're making kind of start to happen in real life, and. It's a pretty dark show. It's it's got a lot more in common with like Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, um, you know. And so consequently, the score for that was was really a lot of fun. And and kind of the overriding um, thought that I had about doing that score was was using instruments that you would find in your grandmother's attic, you know. And they're kind of creaky and wood and metal and sort of just unsettling you know the whole the whole feel of the show was kind of unsettling it was meant to be not scary per se but you just like you, you just feel off somehow and to that end i was using a couple of synthesizers that are that are called ribbon synths and they have a, a, a strip that you run your finger along and so there there are no specific pitches like the keys of a piano and I was I wanted to really use notes that were kind of between the black and the white keys because mm -hmm. it has kind of a psychological effect on you as a listener. It just it feels wrong. <laughs> you don't know why, you know. And so I was able to use two of those to create some textures that, that kind of undulated and um, were behind all, all of the other sort of underpinnings and, and also some really aggressive guitars and. Um, kind of more nine inch nails, you know. Oh, cool! I, I, you know, I've got I've got some really aggressive guitars here. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Um, I was actually, um, you know, while, while I was sort of putting the, these questions together, I had a look around for interviews, and doesn't seem to be very much in terms of interviews with you um, that, uh, that I could find. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I need to be better about doing um, getting out there and talking to people. Um, I tend to uh, hole up in the studio and get really busy. And 
I, I love to talk to people. I love to talk to people about what I'm doing. And, um, you know, uh, anytime someone will listen, I'm, I'm grateful, you know, so well, tell your friends. Well, yeah, I, I will. I mean, the, the cool thing was, though, um, while, while I'm actually searching, I actually came across a, a video you made on YouTube talking about a steampunk project called Victoria Clark. Um, and, you know, it, it sounded really interesting, some of the stuff you was doing. And you talked about when you when you think of steampunk, you talk about, you know, you, you think about Tesla and, and yeah. such. Um, so I'm just wondering, is, is, that, is that still an ongoing project? Because that video was uploaded in 2013. I'm just wondering if you, you ever got to complete it. You know, it's, uh, it's project in <clears throat> development. Uh, a good friend of mine, Ken Wallace, who's a quite well-known uh, visual effects supervisor, um, and among other titles, producer, uh, is, is working on a script, you know, he's got some things that, um, I think it's a great idea and that's why I signed on in the first place. Um, so I, I'd love to see that come to fruition and maybe I need to call him and nudge him a bit, you know. <laughs> I'd love to see it happen as well because I don't think there's enough steampunk, you know. The only steampunk I've really seen is maybe a few anime films and, and stuff. Um, I mean... I guess you could argue that Doctor Who's kind of steampunk or thereabouts, maybe. Um, right. Or, you know, we had Sanctuary a few years back on Sci-Fi Channel, which, which was kind of steampunk. But neither of those have really fully committed to an all-out yeah. steampunk thing. And I'd, I'd love to see it happen on TV, but, you know, or, or even on film. But um, I should imagine the budget would be ast- astronomical, you know, for physical props and things. That's hard to say, Ian. I mean, that may be true. I, I, I'm always amazed by what they're able to do. So I don't, you know, I don't know. Some of those physical effects um, might not be as expensive as you think. I mean, a lot of times the visual effects are more, much more expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it might just be a lot of props that got built. I, I don't know. But I, I, like you, would love to see something that really went headfirst into the whole steampunk uh, world because there's a lot of steampunk fans out there, you know, um, and I just think it's such a cool melding of, you know, Captain Nemo, you know what I mean? It's just, it's, it's, it's really a very cool thing. I mean, you know, I'd, I'd love to know what a, what a steampunk version of the electric guitar looks like and what it sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very, very good question. You know? Um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's connected to a giant steam, uh, you know, um, like interface or something that, that actually powers the strings. I, I, don't, I have no idea. Yeah. Do, do you have to wear, do you have to wear ringy, ringy, thick, thick rubber gloves in order to play it? To stop <laughs> protect your hands from the steam? Probably, probably. Yeah, the strings are over 200 degrees, you know. Mm, you know. Really hot music. Burning red hot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, dear me. Um, other than Chuck, uh, you seem to have done scores for a few horror projects as well as documentaries. And I'm just wondering if you could actually choose a movie or television project. Uh, you know, what 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 sort of project would you choose? You know, what what sort of genre would you would you plumb for? That's a really good question. Um, you know, I, I really enjoyed the show Lost, um, and I thought what uh, Michael Giacchino did there was was just very imaginative and really fit the scope of the show, you know. Um, I, I enjoyed Cult. I mean, I think that had that had a chance to sort of grow, um, it, it, it had a lot of uh, intrigue to it. Um, 
I think anything where I could use kind of stuff that was um, a little bit odd or a little bit left of center, you know, would be a lot of fun. Those are those are things I really enjoy. And then also, I just finished a, a documentary uh, project. It's ongoing because there's a, an additional series called The Abolitionists, and it's it's on human trafficking. Mm-hmm. And uh, I did it with a live orchestra in January, and that's very thematic, you know, little or no electronics. Um, so, you know, I mean, I think that uh, the reason I enjoyed Chuck was that, that there was an opportunity to do so many different kinds of music. Um, but I, I have a feeling there will never be another show like that, you know. It really was a one-of-a-kind. Yeah, I wish to bring it back, even if it's short season. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it'd be neat. It'd be really cool. Um, but you know, I just, I, uh, I think I probably enjoy things that are, um, you know, fantastic, like the sci-fi genre. I would love to do anything that I'd love to do a Western. Cool. Um, I think that would be a blast, you know, um, high seas adventure, you know, just any, any of the high concept stuff I really enjoy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and there's also um, I think I think the high concept stuff it allows you to sort of get really dramatic with your notes and and stuff as well. So yeah, yeah, it gives you kind of an uh, you can get much more operatic with things. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got I've got a final question for you, and this is a really fun one. Um, I've just come up with this one now, um, and that is if you actually had the chance to work with any music composer, alive or dead. Um, who would it be, and what kind of project um, would would you like, like like to work on with them? Oh boy, I'm gonna. This is what's coming to my head. First off, is is Jerry Goldsmith. I would love the opportunity to to you know have him give me some instruction. <laughs> you know, um, he just he knew so much about the orchestra and he knew so much about film. Um, you know, jeez, uh, if if you know to have the opportunity to to co-compose a score, if I'm being really greedy, you know. Um, I think that would that would be fantastic. I mean, but my second answer would probably be to go back further to you know work with Alfred Newman um, at 20th Century Fox during the the golden age wow. of film composing, or Franz Waxman. I loved his music. Uh, Eric Korngold, you know, all those guys were just giants in the world mm-hmm. of film music. And what was the name of the other guy? Herman, somebody or other. He did the uh, oh, Bernard Herman. Bernard Herman did the he did the music to. Um, um, around the world in eighty days, I think. Yeah, he the, did that. I think he did a lot of, um, uh, you know, Psycho, a lot of the the Hitchcock films. Mm-hmm. Um, I love his music. I hear he was absolutely horrible to deal with. <laughs> Just really, really difficult person. So mm-hmm. maybe working with him wouldn't be as much fun. Mm-hmm. Well, I can see where you're going, with Jerry Goldsmith, because you know, for me, Jerry Goldsmith is probably one of the unsung one of the unsung heroes, and I don't think he's. I don't think he's recognised enough for the for the massive contribution that he's made. Because, I completely agree. Because everyone seems to be sort of like in the shadows of John Williams, who's sort of like, you know, he's sort of like one of the first names people think of when, when, when you talk about scoring films. Absolutely. Well, I think that I thought I'd heard a, a statistic recently that he is only exceeded in Academy Award nominations by Walt Disney. Oh, and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I but I know he's way, way up there. And, you know, you cannot deny the guy is an unequivocal genius. I mean, nobody writes a melody these days like that. You know, he's yeah. just so good at it. I mean, I love the work he did with his son on First Contact, on Star Trek First Contact. Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, that's the thing. There, there was Jerry had a very, 
a very varied career. He did a lot of different kinds of films and, um, you know, from small sort of chamber ensembles to the big full orchestra. Um, I don't know, just for my money, it doesn't get any better than when he just lays in with those high strings over it's just soars, you know, <laughs> I love it. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I'd like to thank you for, for your time. It's been fabulous speaking to you. Well, Ian, thank you for asking, and uh, let's do it again sometime. Absolutely, we'll definitely catch up again. Great, thank you. 30 seconds, forward. Okay, engine stop. We copy it down. Remember when science fiction drama envisioned stories that were happening where no one had gone before? Discovering and exploring other worlds far, far away. While many of these series and films became cult classics, somewhere along the way... This genre got lost. Imagine if there was a place where you could go watch exciting new space opera series made specifically for the niche audience that you are. Imagine if this place was conducted by a team as passionate as you about science fiction and who would use all their background experience to make sure you get the best entertainment possible. SOS is a not-for-profit independent production facility that brings together writers, special effects wizards, and other creative talent from around the world who've worked on some of the most recognizable and respected science fiction franchises. So throw away your remote control and get real control by joining the Space Opera Society right now. With as little as $1, you can change the future of entertainment today. For more information, please visit our website. Which is, of course, spaceoperasociety.com. Where all your questions will be answered in our frequently asked questions page. And don't miss our short video presentation from some of our space opera series in development. I'm going to step off the limit. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. It's science fiction that will blow your mind. This is SFP. Now. And that about wraps things up this week on um, SFP Now. Uh, but before we go, we're going to like, play out um, with the uh, main title sequence uh, music to uh, to Abolitionists, which is um, a show that uh, Tim and I uh, very briefly discussed uh, in the in the interview. Uh, so we're just going to play out with the with the main title sequence, and um, you know we hope you enjoy it. So bye for now. Mm-hmm.